take our Bibles and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, and we'll get into the Word of God. Matthew chapter 13. We uh, skipped a couple of these uh, parables in here uh, because of uh, wanting to work with the one in chapter 13, 24 to 30, and then we finished that same parable because Jesus went back and explained it in chapter 13, 36 down to 43. And so we're going to pick up 31 to 35, which we had skipped over. There's two different parables there, and uh, we'll get to their meaning here uh, pretty quickly. Let me begin like this, all right? Uh, We all know that Jesus came to earth to save sinners and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. The Jews, as a nation, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as being their Messiah. So the kingdom is, in the sense that we're here, present in his people, but it is not yet in its full-blown state. We are looking for a time when King Jesus will come back, put his enemies to death, and open up his kingdom to those who will enter his rest, and that'll be the millennial kingdom. Now, in that time, there'll be some people in their uh, spiritual, I mean, in their spiritual bodies like us, and in their physical bodies, and they'll have kids, and they'll populate the millennial kingdom. We will be ruling with Christ, and they will be raising uh, families in the millennial kingdom, uh, and that will be the full-blown state of the millennium. Uh, The amazing thing is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom message to people and they're not listening and they're rejecting it. Jesus preached in chapter 4 of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or repent the kingdom of heaven has come. And he was announcing the kingdom. He wanted them to obey. He wanted them to come and, and join the kingdom by believing in who he is. But the leaders and the nation as a whole were not interested in that. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and they wanted to uh, get rid of him. <clears throat> this is interesting. What's interesting about it is that Jesus is starting a worldwide kingdom, and that is a great big building effort, you would think. But he's doing it with 12 disciples and one of those 12 is a devil. If I was going to start something that wanted to go worldwide, I think I'd start way bigger than that. But Jesus didn't. He started with 11 good guys and one that belonged to Satan. You would think that if you're going to launch a new organization with its sights set on the entire world, you'd need a few more sandals on the ground when you got going. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, scientists, this, has, this is unrelated. I'm just trying to illustrate a point with scientists. The, the point I'm trying to illustrate is this. Uh, there are little bitty things that can have a great big effect. And that's what I want you to know from this. Researchers at the Carnegie Mellon Mellon University, led by Dr. Henry Bradley, are working on a problem like this. Uh, He stated, Dr. Bradley stated, that they have studied it for 10 years and they need 10 to 15 more years before they can come up with a solution. And uh, what are they studying? That's the issue. The issue is this. The question that they have before them is one they're fascinated with, and the question is this. How does such a tiny pill that people take into their mouth uh, affect such a great, big, large human being in comparison? How can you take a little bitty pill and it affect the the entire human? And that's what they've been studying for all these years. And he said, we're a long ways from understanding it, even at this point. Well, uh, the study has included things like antidepressants, ecstasy, vitamins, and pills like Advil, and many more. They want to know why does such a small thing have such a big effect? And the disciples have been wondering the same thing. How can such a small thing like the ministry of Jesus Christ 
have such a big effect that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus um, thought it important for his followers to know and be assured of the fact that the beginnings of the kingdom may look small to you. They may seem insignificant to you, but it's going to grow to great heights in the world. And that's what these are all about. So what I want to do is take them individually uh, first, and then we'll look at uh, the verses for the next one. So we're looking at chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus is presenting another parable to the people. Remember, at this point, Jesus has decided, I'm only going to speak to the crowds in parables. I'm not going to speak to them plainly because they've rejected him uh, for the most part. So he presented another parable to them saying, so here's the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. We're going to call that field a garden for the sake of this. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Please notice the end of verse 32. If you have a good study Bible, it's all in capital letters, meaning it's a quote directly from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament had something to say about what Jesus is saying in this parable, and we're going to have to look at it to understand what's going on. In verses 31 to 32, if you are following along in your uh, bulletin, uh, it's uh, point one, it's this. Though a small beginning, the kingdom will grow to give security to all who believe. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a statement of the whole plan of God that just encompasses everything. And it seems so simplistic, but it isn't simple. It's, it's taken the death of the Savior and the resurrection. It's taken all kinds of prophets giving their lives to serve God and people working for God to get us where we're at today. But it didn't start real big. In verse 31, Jesus is teaching that one can compare the kingdom of heaven with a small mustard seed that will grow into a tree. And it depends on where you're doing your research and what people are saying about a mustard tree. So I decided to go with a middle ground thing. And we're talking about 10 to 12 feet. I don't know in my life if I've ever seen a mustard tree, really. Uh, if I have, I didn't know what it was. Um, I, I didn't see any plastic yellow bottles on it, so I wouldn't know, all right? Jesus is a master at using illustrations that everyone around him is familiar with. These people walked all over the place and they saw gardens all the time and they saw agriculture and they saw mustard trees. And so he uses this illustration, it's something they know. The parable is now about a man who sowed or planted a mustard seed in his field. And I told you I'm gonna call that a garden because that would be uh, mostly what people would do. Most of the people, presumably, are going to recognize that plant, even though it's not, it may not right, be right there when Jesus is telling the parable, but they're going to recognize that plant because they've seen it all over the area in the ancient world. In verse 32, at the first part, Jesus said that the mustard seed is smaller than all the other seeds. Now, um, there's a problem with that because... That is not, technically speaking, the smallest of all other seeds that there are. So what did Jesus mean? Uh, you could see that just on the very tip of that guy's finger, that little bitty seed. Um, I would say maybe a sesame seed might be smaller. There's other smaller seeds. So why did it say it's the smallest? Well, uh, people have said this is a problem, so you can't believe the Bible. Well, I think there's a way to explain that and see what Jesus was saying. There's a couple of options. 
and the solutions have been offered uh, on this comment by Jesus, by other people. Uh, The first one is this, the mustard seed then could be thought of as the smallest of the garden seeds that they knew at that time. Now, if that's the case, and I don't know how you would actually know that, except you would look at documents and say, well, they planted this, 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 and this. And obviously, if I have a corn plant, that corn seed is going to be way bigger than a mustard seed. And it could be that Jesus was referring in his day to just the seeds that they would plant in a garden. And that's what he meant. It's the smallest of the garden seeds. And I think that's got a lot of merit to it. Uh, The other thing is this. Someone has pointed out that the Greek word for smallest means something of limited size. All right? That's important. Small. In other words, what is insignificant or to be of little importance. Thus, uh, that would be not a scientific statement at all. That would be a proverbial usage. Either one of those would fit, and either one of those would uh, keep Jesus from being wrong about what he says. I mean, do you really think the creator of the world couldn't tell you what the technically smallest seed that he created in the whole earth what it really was. Uh, Jesus was doing something there to show people with what they knew and what they had, and I think either one of those works well. This is the smallest seed that uh, you have when you plant your gardens. Or he could be saying, this is a very insignificant-looking little seed, isn't it? It's so small. And that's the whole point. It's insignificant. It doesn't look like it's worth much. It, It just, you know, you'd probably just throw it away or just, you know, flick it away onto the path. We don't need it. But this may be a a proverbial statement because this is about the importance of the insignificance of the starting of the kingdom of God, which he wants them to know is not insignificant at all. The idea of insignificance then is a theme here, and that's going to arise in this parable, and maybe that's why Jesus used it and said it that way. Uh, Both of those are real good options. I don't have to believe that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. No one's proved that. Verse 32 said, And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. All right, now maybe not a tree like uh, some of you have in your yards, not 40 or 50 feet in the air, but it does become a tree and not a bush. So when it's fully fully grown uh, in the garden, it's going to be the largest plant in the garden of the seeds that they planted at the time. And so Jesus is saying this little insignificant seed that you have to look hard to see, if you drop it on the ground, you're probably going to lose it. That's going to grow into a tree that could be 10 to 12 feet high. Some people say as high as 14 to 20 feet. I don't know. But anyway, it gets really big. So it goes from uh, a bush to what could be considered a tree uh, at that height. The idea is that it's seemingly insignificant. Look how small this seed is. And it grows into a most significant plant where garden plants are concerned. It's one of the biggest. And then he says in the second part of verse 32, and it becomes a tree so that, and now we're at the end part, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, please notice those are words, that sentence is all in capitals if you have a good study Bible. And what that tells us is that is a quote from the Old Testament. So what that means is that in the Old Testament, somebody prophesied about this very thing in terms of what Jesus is saying about why is it important. So here's what we're trying to uh, explain, okay? Why is it important? What significance does it have that birds will nest in it, okay? Um, Birds try to nest in our awning over the driveway at the parsonage, and and when Mrs. Hubbard finds out, they don't last long. You don't, you don't build a nest in, in, her, in her awning. You just don't do that. 
but in the trees all around, there, there's nests everywhere. And birds go to nest in trees, I think, rather than in the middle of the ground because it isn't very safe to put your nest in the middle of the ground. Now, some, some birds do that, but it's not very safe. Why is he talking about birds nesting in a tree? What's that have to do with anything? And it's, it's just a mustard tree. It's not that big. You know, somebody could climb up and, and cause danger, but there's more to it going on than meets the eye. Jesus quotes Old Testament verses, not just one, that says this very thing. Says what? So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So imagine you're a bird. You're looking for a place to build a nest. You want it to be safe. Where are you going to go? And that we'll keep in mind as we look at that. Um, one has to get to the heart of the matter, and that's found in the Old Testament text that Jesus is referring to. Let's go first to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to end up looking at verse 12. But I want us to understand the context here. This is uh, about one of the greatest kings that ever lived. And you know him. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. You're aware of who he is. He was the king of Babylon. He was ruthless. He uh, started out by worshiping Bel and other pagan gods. We believe that later he came to faith in Christ when God uh, turned him into kind of an animal for a long time until he turned his eyes to heaven, and then he gave him back his mind, uh, a fascinating character. Daniel is going to uh, help him with some riddles of dreams and stuff that he has. And uh, here's one of them, and it starts in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And uh, they are, they're fantasies as I lay on my bed and visions in my mind. They kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpre interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the conjurers of the Chaldeans and the diviners came in, and I related a dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came before me, whose name is Belshazzar, that'd be Babylonian, according to the name of my God, that'd be Bel, and in whom uh, is the spirit of the holy gods. He doesn't understand who God really is, Yahweh. And I related the dream to him. And guess what? God told Daniel exactly what it meant. And so he's telling about a tree in verse 11. And the tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Now we learn that what uh, the dream is about is about the empire of the Babylonian king. It is a shadow-casting tree, a shadow-casting kingdom over the all the inhabited world, basically. And it reaches to the sky. So he's talking about the enormous reach of this kingdom. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. The influence of the Babylonians was around, around to the inhabited earth. Its foliage was beautiful, so it's a good-looking tree. Its fruit was abundant, so it provides for people. And it was for, all, for food for all. In other words, uh, the Babylonians had something to do with the nations of the world being fed uh, by, by the beauty of this kingdom. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, so it's a place you can go for protection. Now, finally, getting to what we're talking about, what Jesus was quoting, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. Now, we, we can stop there, but what we understand is that here's a tree. It represents what? A kingdom, and that kingdom reaches to the sky, and that kingdom 
is what gives life uh, in terms of human uh, sustenance to everyone uh, and it touches everyone. And the birds come there for the same reason the animals come there. They come there for protection. It's a safe place to be. Now we need to go back and think about what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about a mustard seed that grows, but he's really talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and what's going to happen to it on planet Earth, and the birds are going to come and nest in it. Why? For the same reason they do it with Nebuchadnezzar's tree. It's not really about birds. It's about people under the, under the auspices of and the protection of a kingdom. Here it's the kingdom of God. And so the birds are an illustration of that. Now we have a couple more verses uh, you go to Ezekiel uh, chapter 17. Now I don't have to re-explain all this. You'll understand when we read it. <clears throat> and I want to read here uh, starting in verse 22, and we'll just do 22 and 23. Thus says Yahweh God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar and set it out, and I will pluck from the topmost of its youngest twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on the high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain, here's our verse, on, on the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become stately, a stately cedar, and birds of every kind will nest under it. Could I say this? Not just Jewish birds, but Gentile birds. And they will nest in the shade of its branches. Again, God's kingdom. Again, it's about safety in those places. And finally, Ezekiel 31 and verse 6. All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. Now, friends, uh, God is telling us through Jesus Christ in our text in Matthew that this small beginning of the kingdom of God. Right now, the basically, you know, basically we have this many people pulling for it. John the Baptist is pulling for it, uh, and Jesus is pulling for it, and 11 disciples are pulling for it, and then the converts are picking up along the way. Wow, we're going to affect the whole world with this? It looks kind of tiny, but God says this, that it grows and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air will nest in its branches. Now you know why. It's about a kingdom. It's about a kingdom that's going to care for people. It's about a kingdom where you go for safety, and we run to Jesus so that we can have salvation. And he gives it to us free of charge through faith. The idea here is one of rest and safety in this tree. And this is also partly what the kingdom of God is all about. God at the end of the age is going to destroy all the unbelievers. No unbeliever will enter into the kingdom of God. It's not for them. How would an unbeliever who never served God, how would an unbeliever that when Jesus comes back has all the angels gather up all the unbelievers and God puts them to death? He gathers them from the four corners of the world. He judges them. He separates the sheep and the goats. And the goats end up in the eternal fires, but the sheep end up entering into the rest uh, the relaxation, if you will, of the kingdom of God, they'll be safe there. And so I can't be a post-tribulationalist at all. And I have to be a literal millennial, premillennial guy, because that's what the Bible is teaching. And the place there is a place of rest for the people of God and safety for all those who take advantage 
of that kingdom and become a part of it. Then they can nest in the tree. Yes, the kingdom has a small, seemingly insignificant beginning like a mustard seed, but its growth is great. So I think Jesus is teaching us, don't sit around judging my kingdom by the extremely humble beginnings of my kingdom. And he also is teaching us, don't judge Jesus by the extremely humble birth that we all know he had. What kind of a king is born in a stall? What kind of a king has his first resting place in the straw? What kind of a king is born where there's all kinds of smelly animals running around? That's, that's usually not where a king is born. And there's no more humble beginning than Jesus. And yet look who he became. Look who he is as our savior. Now we have another parable. And let's read it, starting in verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, okay? So what we know is yeast, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak it to them without a parable. All right, why are we, why are we talking about that, you wonder? I want you to wonder that. Why are we talking about parables? And here's why, verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and we're going to learn that's Asaph, and he's again, notice the uh, all capital letters, he's quoting right from the Old Testament, and he is quoting uh, from a psalm, and it says, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter uh, things hidden since the foundation of the world, and we'll read that when we uh, get to it in just a minute and see what that came from in terms of the Old Testament text. So our point here is this. Uh, Jesus, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking every, every Sunday is allergy season for me. All right. Jesus speaks forcefully in parables of the kingdom once hidden. The, king, the kingdom, uh, what was going to happen with the church was once hidden and how it has a great impact from such a small beginning. So he's just saying this. This little thing you see starting with us is going to grow in something very, very big, and it will permeate society. So in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like a small amount of leaven uh, that was hidden in a large amount of flour. So we ask ourselves, so how much flour are we talking about here, Lord? We're talking about three pecks of flour, which is called a satan in those days, or sata. And that's about 35 liters of flour. Now, I'm still not that much into the metric system, so that comes out at 77.16 pounds of flour. That would be enough flour to feed about 100 people in the day. It, it's heavy. It's a lot of flour. Uh, Noel dug potatoes at the end of the week here and put them in a gunny sack, and my job was to carry them downstairs and put them you know, in, front of the, in front of the freezer down there where it's cooler in a gunny sack. 61 and a half pounds that weighed, and the old man had a little trouble picking that up. I finally got it over my shoulder and wondered how if I was going to get down the stairway without killing myself, but we got them there. I can't wait till they turn into hash browns, much more easy to deal with. Uh, but 77 pounds, that's a lot of pounds. And it only takes a small amount, very small amount of leaven to infiltrate and affect the large amount of the dough. In fact, once the process starts, it cannot be stopped. It will continue to permeate all the dough. Nothing will be left out. The result was then the entire mass of dough was leavened. What's he talking about? 
Is Jesus concerned about leaven and, and flour? Not really. He's concerned about the world. And he's concerned about interjecting a small amount of discipleship with a message into the world. And he said it's going to permeate the whole thing. Is that true? Yes, it is true. The kingdom of heaven has been hidden in the world, and now it is out and is working. Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of God is here. I'm offering it to you. The kingdom will grow until its influence will affect everyone that's alive at that time on planet Earth. How is that going to happen? Well, you go to the book of Revelation uh, during some of the judgments, and we find out in the book of Revelation, chapter 14 and verse 6, that God is going to make sure before he brings a final demise to all the unbelievers that everybody hears the gospel. Uh, this is not really a call for missionaries that you have to reach the whole world before these things can happen. This is happening in the tribulation period, and God gives them one last chance. It says, and I saw, John saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So God sees to it that this angel gets the gospel message out to everyone that is alive on planet Earth, something that all our missionary effort has not been able to do. Uh, God will send an angel with a message. How fair of God is that? It's more than we deserve. Certainly, uh, Christianity is a strong influence in the world in many ways. Here's one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He's talking about the fact that uh, the Antichrist is not going to come until uh, the, uh, the, we're, we're going to believe this Holy Spirit of God is taken out of the way. Well, in what sense is the Holy Spirit of God taken out of the way in those times? It says in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, And you know what restrains him now. He's talking about the, uh, the evil one, the beast, the Antichrist, uh, the one who hates God. What, remain, what restrains him now, so that in time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, we take that to be the Holy Spirit of God, will do so until he's taken out of the way. What's he mean taken out of the way? What's well, what the world wants. The world right now wants to get rid of Christians because we are the disease that is infecting them, making them sick so that they can't have what they want, which is a hedonistic society where they can do whatever they want and feel good about it, and nobody's going to shake their finger at them and say, that's wrong. We're in the way. They'd like, to, they'd like to see us removed. And that removal is talked about in that particular place. And God's going to take us out of the way. When he takes us out of the way, who's going to be left to protest things like uh, the gender confusion, things like abortion, things like all this other uh, stuff that's going on that goes totally against the word of God? Well, nobody. Not for a while until some people become Christians in that time. So we're part of the powerful uh, influence in the world for what is good through Jesus Christ. And in verse 34, as Jesus promised, he spoke to the crowds in parables. Now, how do we know that? Well, because uh, the uh, person that wrote Matthew, Matthew, is inspired by, by the Holy Spirit of God, to write the words of God without error in the, original, in the original text. And he quotes this psalm, and we're going to go back to it. Steve read from it earlier this, this morning, Psalm 78. And he says, this is about Jesus. I don't know that I would have known that if I was just reading this, unless Matthew clued me in and said, hey, this was a prophecy about Jesus. So it says in verse 2, which he's quoting, I will open my mouth. He's talking about Jesus Christ in his ministry, hundreds of years before he's there. 
I will open my mouth in parable. And that word uh, mashal in the Hebrew text means a wisdom saying. I will utter dark sayings. He doesn't mean dark like satanic dark. Uh, The word dark there, uh, that word means something that is hard to understand, like a riddle or a mystery. I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. He's talking about uh, what Jesus is doing with the people. I'll tell you a story about what's going to happen. It's going to take a lot of concentration, a lot of study, and the Spirit of God in you in order for you to understand it. And I think that's why Jesus doesn't stop here and tell us exactly what these means. To us, who have the Spirit of God, who know God, know his program, it's pretty clear what he's talking about. And so we, uh, we understand. To them, it wasn't. Now, um, Mark says that Jesus gave the disciples an explanation of this later in Mark 4.34, but that's not Matthew's text. If Matthew wanted us to know that for what he's trying to get across, he would have said, oh, by the way, reference Mark's gospel, because that's probably one of the earliest, right? But he doesn't, because Matthew has something he's trying to get up over to us, and that's what we're trying to exegetically figure out. And so Jesus is keeping what the prophet said he would do. And I think that God's people can figure out what Jesus is talking about here, uh, the growth of the kingdom of heaven, just what he was talking about earlier. And the reason Jesus is speaking this way is answered in this very chapter of Matthew in verse 11 of chapter 13, where he says, Jesus answered them, the disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And then he went into that whole issue in uh, verses 13 and 14. My page turned on me, uh, 14 and 15, excuse me, where it explains exactly why they hear Jesus, but they don't hear him. They hear the words they don't understand, and that's what's happening because they have rejected Jesus, but not the disciples and others. So this forces people to look closely at what Jesus is saying, if they care enough to look. Lots of people today don't want anything to do with the Bible. They don't care to look at the Bible. It doesn't mean anything to them. They think it's just a bunch of old stories that are maybe fun to read, but that's it. And it takes thought and prayer, and the ones who have an ear to hear will hear what the Spirit is teaching them in this text. In verse 35, Jesus also spoke in parables to fulfill what Asaph prophesied in the psalm, that Jesus would open his mouth and teach in parables. Well, so what? Well, so what is, that was prophesied of him hundreds of years before, and the so what is, prophesied so many years before and it's becoming fulfilled literally in Jesus' day by Jesus. God doesn't say things and not literally fulfill them. God doesn't make promises and not keep them. And this just bolsters our faith and encouragement in God that the things that he said are going to happen. And it says he would utter forcefully. The Greek word here means to utter something with volume with force those things which were hidden since the foundation of the world god's plan god's plan i'm sorry god's plans go back to at least as far as the foundation of the world when it was laid by him jesus speaks god's truth with conviction he speaks it intelligibly and he speaks it with force god's secrets are being revealed in parables yes but not to those who believe they'll understand. They're more difficult and hard, and the hard-hearted won't get it figured out. And that goes back to Matthew 13, 14, and 15. 
Well, Jesus explains the spiritual hardness of the heart of the Israelites. Now, this all should be encouraging to us, I think, because one day God's kingdom will be the entire world. That little mustard seed, a baby in a manger, (laughs) in an insignificant little town, in a stable, will become something that will eventually, literally, take over the entire world in the kingdom of heaven. Right now, it's estimated that a third of the people on the earth claim to be Christians. That includes every, every kind of uh, flavor of Christian you can think of, so they're not all genuine, but it's still the largest religion in the world. Others are trying to take over, but it's the largest religion in the world. So you are working in a kingdom that is just going to get bigger. It can't be stopped. Did Jesus say that? I think he did. The gates of hell will not prevail. Against who? You, the church, can't be stopped. Let's be encouraged by that. Okay, the last thing I want to do is just share some applications from this. And those are in your bulletin there too. Um, Eyes are watering too much for me to see what I'm reading here. Let me try that. Okay. Number one, God's program came hidden in a small package, but now nothing can stop its growth. That's the way God planned it to be, and it's happening. Number two, one man from Galilee has grown his religion into the largest on planet Earth today, and it will be over the entire world in the kingdom. You ought to get on board with the kingdom if you're not. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and ask him to forgive you of your sins if you haven't. And he'll give you eternal life. And then number three, the insignificance of Christianity's beginning has not affected its significant presence in the world. God is making it grow. No one can stop him. And finally this, God is in the ministry of taking the seemingly unimportant and making something important out of it like he did his 12 disciples. And I want you to know, I believe that also goes for you and me. God doesn't choose the wise and the powerful of the world. He chooses the weak and the insignificant. And he makes them something significant. That's you and I hope me. We are here to help the kingdom grow. And... uh, We are trying to do that, hopefully more, but if we have to do it one convert at a time, then so be it. Let's do it. Let's pray.